This is Alyssa Olenek of Little List Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. Everybody, and welcome back to the Messy Middle Podcast. I am so pumped today about today's episode. Why? Because I get to interview the one and only Kate Coach Carmichael, my bestie, my yin to my yang, my Anne to my Leslie. We are here today to introduce you to Kate. And so I would assume that most of you are coming from my audience. Some of you might be fortunate enough to already be following the lovely Kate Coach Carmichael on Instagram. But if you don't know who she is and you haven't been introduced to her before, today is going to dive into her story a little bit more in detail, tell you what the messy middle means to her, but actually who Kate is and how she's become the person that she is today, how she views life and all the things that have adjusted for her in the last few years. And I think it's a, a really important story that needs to be told. And so I love Kate. I value having her in my life because she is not my polar opposite, but she compliments and pushes against a lot of my personality traits in a way that's really good. And so when we get on this podcast, I really think that it's so valuable for you guys to listen and hear Kate's story because she takes such a different approach to very similar things that I've experienced as well. And I know that many of you probably resonate with that. And that's what The Messy Middle is all about, about having similar but different but also equally correct approaches to the same things in our lives. And so Kate is fabulous. She is smart. She's getting her PhD with me. She's today's psychology. She's a sleep expert. She's a triathlete. She's in half Ironman. I mean, Kate is the more silent, but equally deadly version of what you guys probably view me to be in this space. And so Kate's way more humble than me. And I appreciate that about her. And so I'm going to hype her up. Kate is fucking fantastic and fabulous. And you need to listen to the story and get to know the woman that is also the wing woman of the Messy Middle podcast. So here we are. The guests themselves. Kate! <laughs> Kate is sitting across from me from Leslie. I'm sitting in Kate's hallway closet right now and staring at her from her bedroom as we record this. So now that I've officially told you who Kate is through my eyes, the love eyes that are of Alyssa Olenek, let's turn it off to the woman herself, the woman of the hour, Kate. So Kate, why don't you start off by telling us where this whole messy middle journey and story started for you. I know that, you know, you were a young athlete just like me, and both of us have a story that parallels in that aspect. And so, and I think a lot of our followers, most of who we are kind of develops in those really early awkward years, whether you're an athlete or not. So why don't we start there and just dive into the the beginning of your, you know, your messy middle and where that started for you? Wonderful. Yes. So I, like you said, was an athlete growing up. I was a competitive swimmer and I was particularly a breaststroker, IMR and long distance freestyler, if you are curious. When you swim breaststroke, the best, fastest, most beautiful technique that you can do is fucking horrible for your knees. And come come to realize that the way that my hips are built, um, I was just prone to knee injury. So I think my messy middle story starts with injury because that's when my life as I knew it before, kind of got turned upside down because all I had known before then was swimming. Like all I did was eat, swim, sleep, repeat, you know, like those stupid t-shirts. I was a living, walking, swimming t-shirt. Was it tie-dye? Was it a tie-dye t-shirt? Yeah, no, I actually had, I had those like fucking tie-dye t-shirts that have like all the names of the competitors on the back. And then it's like, swim. So you're a walking cliche. How tragic. (laughs) Project and then I get an injury. So like, how does a cliche swimmer deal with like 
having to leave her sport. Um, or, you know, I, I guess I didn't have to leave my sport, but that's kind of what happened. Um, cause I'm sure a lot of you guys who listen, you probably have some, a, a lot of our listeners, I think have athletic stories, um, backgrounds where, you know, you grew up doing sports as a kid, or maybe you learned to fall in love with a sport in your adult life. And you know how big a part of your identity that can become. And so for me, I think when I was injured, it was hard for me to change my routine, just even initially, like going to physical therapy, I wasn't in like the conditioning practices with everyone, because I was told, get this, that I couldn't run, or I shouldn't run, or I should never make a hobby out of running. Uh, flash forward, I'm a half Ironman. Like I, <laughs> I run a lot. Um, so to hear that message though, as a 16 year old and to like not be in the same practice space as I was before, was really hard. Long story short, my knees were injured. Like it was honestly painful to walk at points. I was like 16 and it hurt me to walk from class to class in school. Like it was ridiculous. And it happened so suddenly too. It wasn't like um, I had a traumatic injury all of a sudden, but it was it was an overnight development of like all of a sudden my hips were too wide and that triggered the whole thing. And basically, um, without getting nitty gritty into what my injury was, it's like self-induced arthritis of my knees. Like my cartilage is gone. I'm going to need steel knees. I'm going to be an actual iron man, with an iron woman with iron knees um, when I'm older because there's just no cartilage. Like It's all going and you can't get that back. So my decision to leave the sport was because I was no longer enjoying it. It was just painful all the time. And even when I quote unquote graduated physical therapy, it wasn't like I was better. I mean, I was better enough that like, you know, some of the walking pain subsided, but like I couldn't do breaststroke without it physically hurting. And that was like one of my main events. So it just it felt soul sucking. So when I left the sport, I just, I feel like I had an identity crisis where I was like, what do I do now? Yeah. Well, you were 16 when you left. Um, that's when I got injured. Yeah. So I was maybe 16, 17. So you were at a junior in high school at the time. Yeah. Cause I, um, I was a sophomore. Th- this is, this doesn't matter. I was a sophomore when I got the injury. I, I like swam with it for like a year or yeah. some change. I can only imagine how hard it must have been to lose your identity. I mean, as if you guys are listening to this podcast, if you haven't listened to my interview, um, we talk about it in there, but I left my sport, but I was about 20 when I left. And even for me, while it wasn't a physical injury, it was like emotional, I guess. But it was so hard. Cause that when you're, you, when you're really young and you, you know, that's all you have in your life and you think sports is it like, I, I, and it's like, you're just, you do it your whole life, your practice, you're engulfed in it. And so I can only imagine how hard that must have been slightly less mentally mature when you're in high school. And that's, I mean, when you're a high school athlete, like that's, that's it. That's all you do. You're obsessed, your team is your friends and everything. So how did that feel when you were, you know, just at that verge of like being a teenager, but like entering college and you've lost your identity and you're still in that phase of life where you don't even know who you, you are as a person and you're figuring that out. And so how was that for you? I think it's the I think the high school point is important too because I feel like you dream a little bit bigger than reality sometimes and it's like I I could have swam in college and I wanted to swim on scholarship like that was the goal and so I I felt like I had failed the only big goal I had ever set in my life and you had that really myopic view of life yeah. like I was gonna go to college and I was gonna be a great D one lacrosse player but I didn't think it, like you graduate you yeah know what exactly what I happens think? after that. <laughs> Get that like eventually and that's sad is like, well, you're paying it and you're sold this idea. We can talk more about this later that 
you're, you want to get to be an athlete until you're like 22 or maybe 24. And then your whole rest of your life, you're done. And that probably paints ties into a lot of fitness messages we see. Um, but obviously we both learn differently now, but when you were that young and you were in high school and you kind of had that dream shattered, I mean, how did that pivot your life trajectory for you? Yeah. So I think when I stopped swimming, I needed something new to obsess about. And I think it really became this like unhealthy pattern that lasted honestly up until my PhD of being a perfectionist in almost every area of life I could attach it to, but particularly with academics. I mean, go figure, I went all the way you could go now. I'm in, in the third year of my PhD. Um, but I, do, I would say I have a healthier relationship with my like approach to school and, and everything. But I, I dove into studies because I felt like it was something I could be good at. And I felt like I needed something to tell me that I was worthy. And it's like, it's so shitty looking back at that, but it was like, you have to be really good at one thing. And that is what makes you like worthy of love and uh, admiration and worthy of like success. I mean, I can see the picture of me sitting on my dorm floor studying and I had six tutors because I was the worst one on the lacrosse team and I had no friends, but I needed some, I needed to be good at something. I was demoralized. I had nothing. And so my only shot was, I was like, okay, school, I'm going to go. And I'm very grateful. I'm sure you're in the same boat now where I'm glad that I was that intense to school, but looking back, it was not a healthy relationship at all with my academics. Cause I started, I just shifted my whole entire worth into that. Assuming that's what happened for you as well. Exactly. And I think a lot of people fall into the trap of like, you put, I, I, I feel like we talk about this when it comes to business and investments, like you want your income spread across multiple baskets. So if like one basket goes away, you're, you're still floating. And it's like, why do we place our entire identities and worth in one fucking basket? Like, and th but that's what we do until we learn how to diversify it and to like let go a little bit, you know? Like we took one bucket that we had everything in and just dumped all that water into another <laughs> bucket. Yeah, we didn't exactly dump it out into other things yeah. like family and like relationships and fitness or health or anything. It was just like, okay, well, I suck at sports and I can't do that. Well, okay, I'm 100% in this. And then you, you burn yourself, you, you completely burn yourself out. And I'm sure we both have that point in both of our PhDs where we reached that point where we're like, oh, shit, I have to be a functioning human beyond just my academic accolades because yeah. everyone out here is smart. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, there's more than being smart and a, having a four. You know, you, you've had seven buckets all along, but you've only been putting water into one. Yeah. I mean, you realize how much joy happens when you actually try to, you know, distribute your yeah, water. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to carry the one on your head filled with water yeah. the entire time. So anyway, pivoting back to this, you transitioned then from obviously high school to college. And so that's when you got really into academics, but obviously having an athletic identity historically, I think we all turn to, and we both had this where we, we kind of fell into a new athletic identity, but with a little bit of an unhealthy twist. So how was that for you? For sure. Um, I think when we talk about like the black and white messages, I think as a, as a teenager leaving my sport, searching for something to cling to, you know, as a new identity it was so easy to get caught into those traps of like, oh, guess what? Now that I'm not swimming, I can't eat the way I used to. And so now I need to restrict calories. And now I need to cut out entire food groups. And I, I got into like, I would say right before college, even, you know, in my last, my senior year, I was doing dual enrollment. So I was at a community college full time. And then I was working at Lifetime Fitness uh, shout out strong, strong like Shelby, <laughs> who is now on, on, she's so low on her own. Congrats. 
Um, so shout out. Um, but yeah, so I, I worked at Lifetime Fitness and I loved it. Um, but I think being in that environment, I was at the gym during the day, taking classes at night. And I decided that like I needed to change the way that I looked. I think that that was like the big motivator, you know, and I'm sure so many women well, listening women, to this. Even athletics for women already, especially like probably being a woman and you're like knee injury is partially caused by widening hips. It probably made you resent your body from being a woman to some degree. And then you're, you become even more of a woman. And then all of a sudden you go from sports where you have to look like a certain way to be an athlete to, Oh wait, well, you have to look a certain way and to be fit. Like yeah. you, like I always talk about that one mode of fitness, but especially when you're young and impressionable and you go from fitness, like in an athletic space to fitness in like the fitness space, it's like, it's like taking kerosene to a fire and like, it's like a toxic, toxic mess. And so I can only, I mean, I was there. I was, you know what I mean? Like I've experienced it as well. And it, and it it's, it's demoralizing. So I think I, I really bought into those messages and I really took it to heart. I, I even remember I, somewhat recently, like in the past couple of years, I found like what my old schedule looked like from when I was working at Lifetime. And I read it and I had like detailed down to like minutes of when I was going to work out and when I was going to eat and what I was going to eat and when I was going to study and what have you. And the, the stuff that I was eating, like at first it was all about restriction because I went from a swimmer who could literally shove anything down my pie hole and it'd be fine to like, you know, being less active and, and feeling like I needed to quote unquote, watch what I ate, but I was doing it in the wrong way where I just did, you know, the slap on 1200 calories and call that, you know, a diet yeah. and, and live on that. Like not even think that I was just like dieting for a certain amount of time. I, I thought that I needed to live on 1200 calories and it, it would be stupid stuff like instead of eating a whole ice cream sandwich, I would eat half an ice cream sandwich. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I was feeding myself good, you know, a good nurturing foods. And, and then, and then of course, when I realized that I was like, Oh, the reason this hasn't been working for me, it's not because I've been restricting myself horribly. Right. Is, is because I've, I've been eating bad foods. So now I need to do whole foods only like nothing out of a box or bag, like never, never have anything like salty like touch my lips. at 20 years old yelling at my mom. Cause she won't buy me the $3 jar of pickles. Cause they're not processed and yeah, they're like organic or like, I literally got a fight with my mom, the giant Eagle grocery store because she wouldn't buy me the organic. pickles. Like that's what you think. Like you're like, I'm going to die. If I eat these standard dill pickles, like, I will die. And I was like, pray to those messages like on Instagram too. I mean, um, it was getting big. Yeah. Yeah. That's when like Instagram started becoming a thing. And I, I remember reading something about cereal having some kind of toxic chemical in it, like all cereals being processed some way. And then I was like, mom, dad, we have to get rid of all the cereal. And I was like, I took everything to heart because I think I was just honestly so fragile. And my, yeah, myself, like my sense of self-worth and, um, you know, how my body looked. And so I spent a long time fighting with those messages or really, I mean, just kind of accepting them and wearing them like a really sad badge. <laughs> yeah. It's like a big front cope to like everything that's soft and yeah. just broken underneath, which is so sad. And I'm sure a ton of women and men and past athletes, all of us can relate to that feeling in some way where like you're just, you're doing these things as a front to make it look like you're, you have it all together, but really you're just kind of compensating for something that you didn't maybe work through or face or don't want to admit which for like you losing athletics was probably a huge I mean it's a huge shatter in your identity at that time 
And so at this point, you're an undergrad, basically, right? Um, and so I think things got a little better for you at this point. Yeah. I mean, you saw the academic obsession, obviously, that carried forth for many, many years. But at this point, um, I think you had a little bit, maybe it just, you had more direction, right? Yeah. And I mean, I was in kinesiology, so I was actually getting educated, <laughs> you know, like that, that was probably a big part of it, you know? You finally had done the, the, that, uh, the Dwayne Dane Kruger, however you say it. The, what? The, the, hang on, let me look that up. Oh, oh, oh. Is it Dunn-Kruger? Dunn-Kruger effect curve. So you started sliding, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. You started sliding down how I knew nothing. <laughs> from like, I knew nothing, but I think I know everything to, oh shit, I know nothing curve. You just yeah. take a I was, I was right in the bottom of that pit, <laughs> which is a good place to start, honestly. Um, especially when you're trying to like, come across all of this like bullshit messages you've heard once you realize that everything is a lie that's a great place to be that's right? my favorite identity crisis yeah yeah so I think um I was I was starting to get those messages and I I think I found a little bit of a healthier approach at least in my fitness and nutrition however I definitely poured all of my crazy into the into academics and I was originally there to become a physical therapist mm -hmm. and it was like almost most undergrads are right. Right. Yes. Most, most undergrad kinesiology. We like rag on all of our, our undergrad We're students. We're all physical therapists and none of us know what that actually means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think my, you know, obsession with it was like, I wanted to save my previous self, you know, physical therapy is what I needed. And that like, quote unquote, fixed me even, even though it really didn't like looking back, I don't know how I made that thought because I left my sport anyway and it was still horrible, you know? Uh, what I needed, well, you know, and then I decided I needed to be a sports psychologist because that's what I really needed, right? Was not <laughs> was not to be fixed physically, but to be fixed mentally. And so I think diving into academics was like a little safe spot for me because people appreciated it. Like I was getting good feedback. Yeah, I was getting the grades. And so it was kind of, it's like you get a freaking trophy every semester. You get all A's, you know, you the president into a letter. Yeah, you burn yourself out to the point of self-destruction studying for that exam. But as soon as if you get the A, then it doesn't. Yeah, it justifies it, and everyone praises that, and they don't look at the really unhealthy means that people sometimes take to that. For sure, yeah, and I think um, I know we also have a lot of listeners who are graduate students or thinking about graduate school, and like there's certainly a healthy approach to it. And I think Alyssa and I have finally struck that balance. You know. Only, only a decade into our studies, though. <laughs> so you can find it sooner, I hope. You know, I hope for you. But I, I think that's where things got almost worse in terms of perfectionism and anxiety. Like, I think I had, I had always had maybe the tendencies for all of those things to, to be a part of me. And, but really, like, anxiety started ruling my life in undergrad. I mean, I remember, especially towards the end, I was applying for graduate school and I, ha I had such big imposter syndrome with a, you guys, I had like a 397 GPA and I was worried I wasn't going to get into graduate school. You know, like who? Like me graduating. Yeah. High honors, research, everything, crying that yeah. I'm not going to get into graduate school. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it was, it was a complete and utter, just, you know, a bullshit thing to worry about. And here I am like, I applied to seven schools and seven assistantships. And do you know how much time it takes as an undergrad to apply to graduate school when you have to write statement of purpose for all of them and they have to be a little bit different because they all have specific questions. And then you have to like send them a bunch of writing samples and other things. And so I applied to seven schools while taking 
my least favorite kinesiology course, biomechanics. <laughs> it was so hard for me. Thank God she wasn't going to PT school anymore. <laughs> Actually, you know, the decision for that was also like a really dumb black and white message that women in physical therapy get is that they're not strong enough or big enough. If you're a small female, that you're not cut out to be a physical therapist because you can't do the manipulations on large men, like manual manipulation. You can't move them around. Just another, which is, and that ties into the idea of like that, that crippling imposter syndrome that we both had. I mean, I physically cried the day before my master's because I thought they made a mistake. Like walking into yeah. the building, I'm crying my eyes out. And I know like so many people can relate to that, but it's also ties to that message that like we get as women that we almost have to like, shrink or that we are never good enough for what we do we're like oh one thing i love about men is that they'll be like 40 percent prepared and they'll be like oh, i can fucking do it and i'm like, <laughs> like and it's it's a beautiful thing like I, i'm not making fun of dudes like i wish that more women had that in them but we probably both felt that same thing that you were feeling there we're like you're you have to be so perfect to be enough to get in or like it's almost like women can't be like, there's that underlying tie in that you're probably like, well, I shouldn't get an assistantship or this isn't for me, or I'm not cut out for this for no other reason than like, you kind of just were told indirectly through multiple avenues your whole life that you had to like, be perfect to be good enough for these things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that followed me for I would, I would say until the past like few years, that that really that message still stuck with me. And it's not like it's gone, you guys, I want to like, make that clear. I still struggle with perfectionism. I, I mean, in fact, like even this episode, I wanted to like prepare for it, you know? And here's the thing. I just have to have a conversation with Alyssa. Like I need to get out of my own head because I know that I have those tendencies. And if I script every single thing, I'm just going to be so worried about what comes out of my mouth. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think that like, even they view me as excessively confident. And it's not that I'm confident. It's that like, I basically had to like do so many things that scared me to show me that I could do them that I had to get to the point where I looked at myself. I'm like, you're an idiot for thinking you can't do these things. Like, it's just like so stupid. But even like, I panicked about our podcast three days ago because I was yeah. like, we can't do this. It's too much. We're not capable. And it's so stupid. And this is why I think the the ebb and flow of Kate's and I relationship in this podcast is so great for you guys to see because we both have, Kate's a little bit more of a perfectionist of me and I'm a little bit more of a fuck it, let's go. But then I like panic later on because I didn't prepare. And Kate's like, no, we laid the groundwork. We're good to go. And so I think it's important to see that comparison and ebb and flow and yin and yang of that with how say that we meet in the middle. Yeah, we meet in that messy middle. And I think a lot of people who listen to this, like you might not ever always resonate with me, but you might resonate with Kate, who's a little, her approach is a little more rigid than mine with life. But we both have those same, like our, our stories are very similar. You know what I mean? Like fate only brought us together by like three degrees of freedom separate. So Okay, so building off that montage of our own anxieties in the past, at what point then between undergrad, obviously you applied to seven grad schools, you probably got seven assistantships. assistantships. You're probably like me, like I got all of them and I was like, oh, what? Okay, now I have to make a choice. But at what point, so I know that your your master's research in niche work is probably where you kind of translate it into what we know as Coach Carmichael and people know you as the sleep and psychology person. But did you make that choice to go that route in undergrad or was that during your master's where you finally found that that niche and what your passion was within the, the broader house that is kinesiology? Like obviously you turned away from PT and you liked exercise science. And you were really good at that as a student. But when did you kind of make that connection between your own struggles with anxiety, but wanting to bring in the science to the actual work that you did with that? Yeah. So 
funny enough, I think I just mentioned this, that I then decided sports psychology was what I, I should do because that's what I would have needed, you know, as a young, impressionable teenager who is struggling with injury. Um, and I and I actually got a really cool internship working with the University of North Texas swim team. So I was working with my sport as a junior sports psychology consultant. And I realized that the work that I thought it was, which I thought sports psychology was just about giving you like quick tips and tools to like, you know, you have race anxiety. So let's give you a couple things to do right before you race and you'll be fixed and fine. And I, I realized that there is no quick fix or there's really, in my opinion, no such thing as like mental tools. You know, I think what is really at the base of all of that is your mindset and your psychology and what makes up who you are as a person. And for you to think that you can combat what is like this giant anxiety before your race with just a few, you know, deep breathing techniques, I just don't think is reasonable because what I've learned is that it really stems from childhood, probably. I mean, that's kind of my belief is that everything that we do is kind of made up of who we were and the messages we were taught growing up. And, you know, it turns out that that athlete is always anxious because they're worried that their parents won't think that the race is good enough, you know, or something like that. And you can't, you can't get that by giving somebody a mental tool. So I realized during that internship in my master's that I realized you needed to be a psychologist to deal with those problems. And I didn't want to just be a psychologist. Like I didn't want to get my psych degree. I wanted to stay in kinesiology because that's my first love. And so I kind of fell into the sleep world because again, we're always just trying to solve our own problems. I had insomnia <laughs> and I have bruxism, which is where you clench your jaw or some people grind their teeth at night. And that turned into horrible sleep and chronic migraines that I still get, um, especially when I'm stressed. So I was like, okay, I think people are are either, this is my original belief, people are either good sleepers or bad sleepers. I'm a bad sleeper. So why don't we just take these bad sleepers, make them exercise, and then they'll be a little bit better than they were if they weren't exercising, but still sleeping poorly, right? Like that's such a simple. I'm <laughs> like, a, no, no hate to our young masters or like undergrad yeah. students. But like, as you learn more, you look back at your old way of thinking things through, which is probably advanced for where you were at, at your moment in time. Um, but you look back and you see how you can, you take these rudimentary concepts, like exercise, good yeah. exercise, fix problem, shove blocks together, Lego house. <laughs> like, like, it's like how you think of research. That's how you make a research question as a first year master's student. Yeah. And it's like good at that point in time. That's like good. But now you're looking back and you're like, well, there's this flaw that, and this, and this is wrong. I'm like, what? And that's actually hilarious. And, and you're like, oh, but nobody else is doing this. And they're like, yeah, because it's dumb. Like, <laughs> like you get so excited because you're like, I'm the first paper to do this. And then like now looking back. Turns out you don't even know how to do a lit review. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, I think I've finally, I've actually finally, I would say arrived at not trying to solve my own problems and like just doing things because I enjoy them, which we can get to. But I think that that transition in my master's really yielded like my interest in sleep and got me, you know, thinking about the scientific applications of exercise and sleep. And to give you some insight on how I feel about it now, um, exercise and sleep are bi-directionally related, which means they both transform each other. You know, exercise habits make like good exercise habits yield better sleep. If you don't sleep well, you're also less likely to exercise because who wants to move when they're sleep deprived? It's all connected and it's cyclical. So I once I, you know, kind of realized that I 
found my home, um, you know, like much later on Instagram, talking about sleep and exercise, and then all of the other things I'm interested in, you know, from my own personal journeys with anxiety and perfectionism, and all of that. And so there's also another big pivot that happened to you during this time. So you finally kind of found your niche in research, which this is about where you're at now. Obviously, you're a lot more mature with your relationship with research and school and academia and all that stuff, which I think just happens as your PhD slowly chips away at your yeah. you, you just your soul like leaves the building and you just have no emotional response to anything. You are numb. <laughs> Apparently, according to my PI, that means you're ready to get your PhD. Right. Yeah, been thoroughly sucked out. Yeah, yeah. once you stop emotionally responding to everything, that just means you're ready to go. So <laughs> I guess like we're ready. We're at the tip of that iceberg for both of us. Um, but with your personal relationship with fitness and everything at the time, though, this was a big pivot for you because I think you stopped really abusing exercise and you started to find joy in athletics again in a way that you probably felt like you could never have and you had lost when you lost swimming, but you started to run, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, and funny enough, like I didn't, when I quit swimming, I like rarely touched the water too. And I think I swam like one summer. So it's maybe had been like five or five or six years in between, no, probably seven years in between. And I had touched the water one summer, you know, so I wasn't really swimming anymore. And I, I had actually found some joy in lifting, which is funny because I lift now, but I was primarily lifting for those like five years in between. And I didn't return to like cardio (laughs) really as a sport until my family started running. Like my brother had always done like track and cross country, but then my parents started running. Like they started with couch to 5k and now they've run multiple marathons. And I'm like truly inspired by my parents. I hope they're not listening. Um, Listen, I want to hang out with Kate's parents all the time, actually. My mom are like best friends, like more than we are. I'm going to go hiking with Alves and Kate's parents someday. Like they're cool. Like they're good. I mean, I'm sure everyone has their qualms with their own parents, but for friends, parents, I got lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, geez. I hope they don't listen. <laughs> and play their egos. No. Um, but I was I was really like inspired. And I, I was like, I'm in a family of runners and I'm the only one not running. And I think in the back of my mind, I had always kind of held on to that. You shouldn't make running a hobby, you know, thing that I was told as a 16 year old. Um, and I decided to say, hell with that. I'm going to sign up for a half marathon uh, with my friends in Dallas. And I loved it. I mean, I had such a good time. I I had a good time and I had a good time. I was sub two hours. Woo, and I haven't repeated that. <laughs> I consider you more of like an actual runner than me. I know like I always talk to people on the internet and I'm like, you're a runner if you run, but like authentically at my heart, I'm a beefcake. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I run. Your primary identity is beefcake. My primary and then- identity is beefcake. You know what I mean? Like that's true. I truly am. But like, I actually consider you like an actual yeah, I'm like, more cardiovascularly you're inclined. You're more of a true endurance. Like you ran half marathons on the road on purpose. <laughs> kind of okay. thing. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I had a really good time doing that. And I, I think that was one of the times that I best balanced the Alyssa hybrid life, you know, of like running and lifting um, both a lot, both simultaneously. And I think too, because I was in my master's, I was teaching physical education courses. So this is when I was teaching yoga too. Fun to bit. I did that for a while. Um, but so I was, all I was doing was teaching yoga and weightlifting. So I was just working out all day, every day, and then going to class at night. So it was really a perfect situation to be like at my, you know, top fitness level. And I like, I just rekindled the the love that I had for sport and like, was able to develop a, an adult athletic identity that, I, you know, a lot of people 
I hope that are listening to this podcast can find for themselves if they've not already found it because it's so joyful to like do races as an adult because a there's less pressure I feel like you know like when you're a kid like everything feels like so heavy it's it's just fun and you get a medal and sometimes they give you a beer and it's like a much better way I feel like not better a better is a bad way to say it it's a it's a very fun option on to engage in physical fitness as an adult that makes especially if you're competitive or you're an athlete growing up it gives you a way to move that doesn't feel as like like I don't know like even if I'm running every single day, like I'm working towards something and I got to go to a race and yeah, and they're going to feed me gummy bears. And like, <laughs> and they're going to clap for me yeah. while I feel like crap and I'm going to shove chips in my pocket on the way out. And so anyway, pivoting back to this, I think this was probably like a big cusp of your story here. So you're both doing these half marathons and this is probably about the time that you started to get into that idea of doing something more and bigger, but you're also in the middle of your PhD, you're, you're finishing up your thesis and you had a really good, you were like me, we both had like dissertation size master thesis project. And like when you're in academia and you're a good student, even if you have crippling imposter syndrome, you're going to have really smart people that you really look up to be like, you're great. You should be doing this. Like, and they push you down that idea that, you know, you can only be in academia, you have one job, you have an option. I think for both of you, you kind of rid that roller coaster to the top of both of these ideas. And with one, you just are ready to take the downhill to the exit. But then the other, you're still climbing and reaching towards those bigger goals. So, you know, you you kind of made that shift and maybe thinking academia wasn't for you, but also now you're going towards that Ironman. So it was like a funny... Yeah, I just swapped. I swapped the water in the bucket again. You yeah, know, right? you swapped the water in the bucket. But now I feel like you have, you know, you have, have more you water have other five buckets. buckets instead of like two. So how was that for you with translating? And I know a lot of this kind of happened with you coming to Athens, where we're at now, and coming to UGA. And so if you guys missed the preview episode, Kate and I gave our backstory of how we became friends. But at this point in time, me and Kate, I don't even think I knew Kate existed. But that story tells you, like that preview episode tells you that story. But Kate and I both had our own individual struggles, which I talk about in my podcast. But for you, Kate, you were kind of in that same really funk at the beginning of your PhD. And so when you're making that transition of feeling pressured to be in academia while also simultaneously like training for your first half Ironman, what was that like that that time period for you? Yeah, I think that if I had to like pinpoint a moment where I started like shedding the black and white bullshit and like finally finding where my messy middle is. It was the first year of my PhD, which like was really hard and kind of awful most of the time, honestly, because PhD just takes your identity and puts it in a jar and shakes it up. Like <laughs> the only way I can describe it. That's a good analogy. Yeah. And you, you just don't know what is going to come out of it. So I, I realized at this point that I had I was at a boiling point with anxiety because all throughout, you know, like I, I mentioned, my undergrad and master's, I felt like it was just building. Like I, I was worried about everything and I didn't find like a good way to cope with it, honestly, you know, and, and especially I think when you're in your young 20s too, the, the message is to like reach for wine or beer or like, you know, drink with your buddies and everything's fine or and, or, you know, just watch a bunch of Netflix and ignore all your feelings. And I think I, I had a lot of those like unhealthy coping strategies. And when I came to my PhD, when I'm realizing for the first time that, oh, I don't actually want to do what everybody's been, you know, celebrating me for, which is, you know, to stay in academia forever and then go right into a tenure track, you know, I, I realized that I didn't have the skills to cope. Like I didn't have a good way. I would 
probably just sit and cry all day, every day if I didn't go do something about it, you know, because I was just so upset with the fact that I felt like I had been working all my life towards this singular point and I was realizing that I didn't want to do what I was doing. I think there's a big difference too that I think a lot of, I mean, the, that this is a message a lot of PhD students get, but just because you're good at something doesn't mean you need to do it. I think that applies to all things in life. And the same thing applies like when people tell me that I should leave my PhD and immediately grow my business. But I like, I kind of want to maybe be a professor and teach because I love that. I get a lot of, but I'm not as good at it as I am at other things. But at the same time, like, like you're given, a, you have more of a choice in that. And I think that for you, you didn't like, for me, it was always like, okay, well that, that plan, it's safe. Cause I actually might want to do it. So it's like, oh, okay. Like that's good that people are pushing me towards it. Cause like, that sounds like something I'd want to do. But for you, you were like heading towards a, it felt like a cliff almost. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, it was like a wake up call when I got here because I also like for personal reasons, my fiance was going to live here. So the other program that I was interested in attending was several states away. And I decided that we were going to not do long distance anymore. So part of the reason that I came to this university and to study um, exactly what I'm studying now had ulterior motives, you know, and I think that when you sign up for something as big of, as a PhD, it doesn't really leave a lot of room for compromise because you're going to be miserable if you're not doing exactly what you want to do. Because PH, like getting your PhD is already so hard. It's going to be hard even if you, I mean, I have a good experience and it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's just so hard. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. It's, so hard. <laughs> it's hard. Life is hard. No, but I, I think that's like the realization too of when it wasn't the ideal situation for me, and, and this is nothing, my advisor is great. The department's been great to me. It's, you know, nothing about that. It's just, I wanted to have a more direct impact working with people. And I felt like that wasn't what, exactly what I was going to be doing here. And that's okay. But it made me realize that I didn't like what I was doing. And I didn't want to like keep aimlessly trotting down the PhD path without a purpose. Like why get the letters behind my name? Why like go through all the turmoil if and I you don't have to have want a really to really big why yeah. to do this, like it's not like you just like take an exam or show up. Like it's a lot of resistance to have that, you know. And knowing the angle helps you stay motivated through yeah. the through the if middle, that, the messy like, middle of your PhD. <laughs> like you have to know that there is eventually you get to something. Yeah, yeah. I think this was the breaking point, you know? And so I think if I, again, had to pinpoint the moment of change, it's here because this is when I was like, okay, no more. I can't go on, you know, living in, I can't like go on pretending that this is for me anymore, you know? And so I went to counseling, which is funny to me because I've always been a quote unquote advocate of counseling, but I had never actually been myself. And I, I'm not, Alyssa thinks I'm talking to her directly. I'm not. <laughs> I tell I, I tell everyone that therapy is good and they should go, but I probably need to uproot my own childhood trauma. No offense, mom, it's not you. It's most of the elementary school teachers, you know that. No, but I think I, I think it does change the way that you think about it because, and, and again, Alyssa, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking know, to everyone. Know. But I think a lot of people have the idea of like, yeah, counseling is good, but I don't I don't need it. It's not for me or you know whatever. And I, I think too you know, you joke about your tr childhood trauma or whatever. But I think a lot of people have some stuff to unpack in their childhood that they don't realize. Like I had a, I had great parents. I had a normal quote unquote childhood. There was no abuse, trauma, you know, anything that like would stand out on a 
you know, psych evaluation that you would be concerned with. And there's still messages that I got just being in today's society. And we all have. Yeah. We all have. So like, I think it's so you didn't fuck yourself during the first year of your PhD by running ultra marathons and starting a business to yeah. cope. You didn't, didn't take that approach. <laughs> you mean you took the healthy route of going to counseling mm-hmm. and actually working mm-hmm. through your shit? Yeah, weird, huh? I think being in the woods for eight hours is like almost fifty percent equal. But <laughs> there, there's some good stuff there. I'm not gonna lie, but um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I think here, hearing so going to counseling and I started picking up a lot of personal development books. I honestly think reading changed my life too. Um, And I think too, that that really like triangulated all the messages I was hearing into a bunch of different perspectives that made it really clear. Like I was really refreshing to have. So Kate and I, when we became friends, we realized we've read a lot of the same books. books, (laughs) We have very different ways of living. We have these same fundamental things, but it's nice to have these, especially when you're like a success driven person in your twenties and you're not like in that kind of so maybe certain path a lot of people still in their 20s that you've never had anyone put these things into words that you're thinking yeah about. yeah yeah and it was kind of like I would hear the same message just spun a little bit differently from my counselor from the book I was reading from my fiance so it was kind of like hitting me over the head with the stuff that I really needed to get into and like you know uncover for myself and figure out what was inside me that I really did want to do or what I was missing from my PhD that I could then grab and and pull into the experience that I that I wanted. You guys are always asking me, Liz, what the heck do you do on your long runs? And Kate has recently converted me to Audible. With Audible, I'm able to combine my two favorite pastimes, running and learning. If that isn't the most Alyssa thing, I don't know what is. I know, right? So Audible has helped carry me many, many miles with audiobooks and podcasts. And the best thing about it is I'm able to download them directly to my phone and listen to them while I'm offline, running through the woods in the middle of nowhere with no cell service. And since I have a reading list approximately as high as I am tall, there's no other way I'd be able to consume so much with how busy I am. That's exactly why I love Audible. I've been a member for years now because I honestly cannot read enough books if I have to sit down to read them all. Audible has been a godsend because I can listen to audiobooks while I'm cooking, working out, or walking my pup Rocky, but my favorite way to use Audible is as I'm going to sleep, and you guys. I recently found out that Audible has bedtime stories narrated by none other than Nick Jonas and Tony Shalhoub, who you may know as the character Monk. Their voices are like so perfectly sultry and like they really guide you off to sleep. It's incredible. So every month, members get one credit to pick any title, no matter the cost, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digest and guided meditation programs. Dare I say, by no other than the Pete Diddy himself. If that doesn't scream littlest meditation, I don't know what does. The Audible app is available on all smartphones and tablets, and you can download titles to listen offline, anywhere, and anytime. You can start listening today with a 30-day trial. You get one title plus two Audible originals for free when you visit audibletrial.com slash messymiddle. That's audibletrial.com slash M-E-S-S-Y-M-I-D-D-L-E. Yeah, and so for those of you who, again, you need to go back and listen to that first one because it's hilarious, our preview episode. But this is where me and Kate actually, like, our worlds collide at this point. Um, And so Kate and I, like, apparently had classes together and I didn't know you had to listen to the episode. I'm I'm the worst. I'm such an awful human in real life. is very apologetic. Like, she keeps bringing it up so you know she feels bad. I feel bad, but I'm really, like, not as – I feel like I'm a meaner person in real life than people think I am. I don't know. But anyway – I'm pretty oblivious and kind of a bitch. 
<laughs> and so Kate and I kind of come, we cross stories and it makes more sense if you listen to that episode. But for you, you kind of wanted to not do what I was doing in the way of copying me, but you saw that I had like that feeling of like, I wanted more to make me feel like my work and my PhD was valuable and meaningful. And this is a big reason why I, I do have my Instagram and do what I do. Because honestly, when your PhD is demoralizing, like I can still make an impact while I'm doing something that is also like making me feel like I'm the biggest piece of shit in the world. Like it's a very weird parallel, but you kind of had that recognition where like, you were like, Oh wait, she's doing this thing that I want to do. And that's where like Kate and I kind of finally connected and became friends. And so for you, how was that pivot? I mean, like I, I kind of know this cause I was there for this, but for our audience, how was that pivot for you of like finally saying like enough is enough. Like you love your research, you know, your advisor's great. We're in the same department. We both have pretty good experiences compared to some PhD students, other places, but that, that translation of like finally finding purpose and what you were doing and being able to use that to actually impact people. How was that transition for you? And like, what made you finally officially be like, come up to me in the gym and be like, yo, how do I start right. Instagram now? Yeah. I think there, there was like maybe a laundry list of things that I had kind of developed, you know, through counseling or through reading that I was like, okay, this is what I need in my work to feel fulfilled. Like this is what would make me happy regardless of how, like what shape or form it takes. And one of the things on there was to work in a way that more directly impacts people. And I think that, um, you know, in a future episode with Brittany, she's actually going to share one, one of the things I highly relate to her with is that when you become, when you start your tenure track academic, you know, future, you slowly lose hold of the work that is really direct. When you're a PI is what we call a principal investigator. You're the one sitting back writing grants in your office while your graduate students do the work, right? And so it kind of seems silly to me. It was like I was doing all this graduate training to work hands-on with people. And then I was going to eventually fade, phase that out. And I wanted to keep doing that, whether it was in research or whether it was how I found, you know, communicating science to people on Instagram and having real relationships with people, you know, through the phone, which is cool. So I, I think that that was one of the, the big things that I felt like I was missing in the first year of my PhD, especially because I wasn't doing a, um, an experimental research project. I was only doing a observational survey at the time. So I wasn't working with anybody and my lab, um, you know, while it's not like they're not collaborative, but my lab has had four different individuals doing very different projects because exercise psychology spans a really wide range, whereas physiology is so established that you have a metabolism lab or a blah, blah, blah lab. And exercise psychology can mean everything. Like I do sleep, somebody else does anxiety, somebody else does pain, somebody else did virtual reality. So like there, we didn't have enough shared interests to even work together within our own lab. <laughs> well, I think that like we both can relate to that feeling of wanting to do more. And luckily I do a lot of human subjects research and I like mentor students directly hands-on. And so I get a lot more human interaction, but even with that, I mean, sometimes research, I mean, we, I haven't published a damn thing yet. And so it doesn't, mine hasn't even impacted the scientific world yet. So it's like just kind of yeah. mulling in my Dropbox right now, all my, all my findings of mediocre significance, but it helps you feel like you're actually almost like validating the work that you've done in your education at that point in time. And like, 
realizing that maybe you aren't an idiot and you can actually provide value. But there's also that message that you get in science, academia, and grad school that the only good work that you can do is by doing science. But communicating it or dealing with people or media or anything like that is frowned upon almost as like it's a skill that you're not trained to do or taught to do. But then it's almost thought of to be a lesser skill. But then we have all these really, really bright people who don't know how to convey a damn thing. And then we have, that's where misinformation comes from because you need you need those liaisons between that. And I think that it's, was it hard for you to find like that being okay with that identity that was maybe, I don't want to say frowned upon, but like naively looked at as less meaningful in the world of academia when you recognize like, I don't want to be a tenure track professor, but I want to have an impact on people that still involves science. Yeah. Ex- that, I mean, you really placed it nicely where it's like, you kind of have a struggle with accepting what is considered by the community a lesser than thing. And to be such like a driven person and to be perfectionistic, that almost feels like you're ripping away something that you've like worked towards to, you know, quote unquote, take a step down. And that's not how I see it anymore. But that of course is what you're, you're taught. You're failing every single mentor or person who's put into you your entire life. I mean, I felt that when I left Vandy, that's exactly was my struggle with leaving. And you people would invest so much in you that you feel bad telling them that like you don't want their dream. Yeah, exactly. And I think I, I even remember saying this in counseling. I said something like, well, I don't know if I'm going to like who I am without all this anxiety because I think it's going to, you know, make me lazier or make me not want the things that I want now, which is so silly now because of course, when you want something different, you'd no longer worry about the things you used to want. But that was my idea was like, if I slow down for a second to deal with this anxiety and to like unpack all of these feelings, I'm going to realize that I don't want this dream everyone's pushed on me. And it's going to be hard to, you know, have those conversations or to take a different path that a lot of other people don't really understand, or maybe don't see as like holy and successful as the tenure track, you know, role. Yeah. And I think, I mean, granted, I need to go to counseling or therapy probably still. But I think when you like, you face yourself and you get to know yourself and you unpack your own shit. I mean, obviously counseling therapy probably expedites that. It's like hiring a fitness coach. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? But you can still unpack your shit. What I called for years, unfucking myself is what I called it, which is probably not the most appropriate thing to self-talk you yourself into. Copyrighted by Mark Manson. Or is that, is that what it is? Okay. Like it's literally, I've never read the book that I know what book you're talking about, yeah. but like I call I called it my, my process of unfucking myself. And I think once you start to recognize who you actually are and what you actually want out of life, that that you sense that and you're in, like the bar where you sense that anxiety when something's like in it's such a cliche word that makes me want to vomit misalignment. You know yeah. what I mean? With like yeah. you are, but like, you feel it come up and you're like, oh, okay. Like it's that maybe I'm like a gut triad enneagram, maybe too much. I'm an eight, um, but you feel that and you're like, nope, that's not that's not right. Like, and you can tell when you're like at ease, and it's like funny now because like at first you panic to that. But now, like, when you kind of, like, realize these things, you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to do that anyway. Like, and you're okay, and you can sit, because you know what you are and who you are so much that, like, even if someone looks at you and says that you're really dumb for wanting to do that, you'd be like, cool, well, it's my life, yeah. All right, like, you don't have to lie in my grave when I'm done with this, so, like, whatever, see you later, and, like. I think it's so silly, like, we're so afraid to change who we are or what we want, but we do it all the time anyway, so. You know, it's either like go with the flow, like go with what you want to do now or be stuck in what you used to want for yourself and it feel incongruent with who you are. You know, like why would you choose that? It seems so silly to me now, but that's what I was struggling with. It was like, I can just stay in this uncomfortable feeling, but I'm doing what I 
told myself I, I mean, would do. do you want to be at something that you are miserable at, or do you want to be slightly above average, okay, good at something you really love? And that's the thing. I, when I left Vanderbilt, I could have been a fabulous molecular physiologist and really never had my business, never had my Instagram, just went all in on science. But I wouldn't have been happy. I could have maybe been a pretty decent scientist, PI. You know what I mean? Like done that lifestyle. But now I'm like, I'm more comfortable and more at peace. Even if I stay in academia, like I want to have be more in a position where I'm mentoring students and teaching. And like, I want that impact somehow, some way, whether it's your social media or business or academia, but you can recognize it in yourself that you can still even have dreams in the same path, but they can look differently. Like you can change the way you're in academia or business. Like you don't have to be like the one thing that people say you like you have to be, which I think that ties in like we're women and we get shitty messages about diet and fitness, but academia and all these areas, they get their own, like they give you one version of what you're allowed to be. And if you're not that, it, it, the systems never change. And so like, we need to like shake that up and be willing to challenge that in order to like both improve it for other people, but for ourselves, right? Like, and that's the most impact that you can have. And I think it's so important that once you begin to uncover like who you are and what your like core desires really are, that you realize there's a lot of paths that would make you happy. I think I used to believe that there was just one thing, you know, that one path I should I should stay on it and that should be good. And I highly recommend um, the book Range by David Epstein for this, you know, mindset shift if you if you kind of feel yourself falling victim to this, because there's really no one set way. Like I might even want to own a bed and breakfast, which has nothing to do with anything. Like yeah. Like I spent a decade studying science and I'm like, yeah, I'll just open a bed and breakfast. And that that would be a fulfilling thing for me because I would impact I think people. The biggest thing about higher ed, especially, is that I really reframe, like you you get so all in and obsessed and focused in a really unhealthy way. And then you kind of reach this brink of clarity where like science is important, but you also realize at the same time, like everything you're doing is also like completely meaningless. Like you, we, we did a lot of like Richard Feynman reading and stuff when I took Dr. Call's molecular physiology class. I'm like, literally one of the things was talking about how we're all made of carbon and like we're floating carbon and like, we're basically going to die and no one's going to know what our science is and it's not even going to matter. And so you have to like, it sounds really morbid. And I brought it up in that class to people. I was like, yeah, like this is all meaningless and I'm going to die. And no one's going to even know that I did this. So you kind of like, I might as well make the best choice for what's going to make me happy in this meaningless pursuit. And so like when people ask me like, why did you get your PhD? Like, why do you run ultramarathon? I'm like, what else was I going to do? But like, what, like it's my time, like it's meaningless, but also you can make, you can define what that meaning is. Cause eventually someday it's literally not going to matter. It's all just yours. And I think for like people listening that might feel like, okay, so maybe I, feel like we're Kate and Alyssa where we're, I, I'm not exactly happy with what I'm doing now. And how do I even find what might be a good alternative for me or something to do? Because it's not like, it's not like we completely changed our entire lives. Also, we're not suggesting that you like, com- completely quit one thing and do another. Hey, I'm still getting my PhD, even though I think I'm not going to use it directly in that, you know, a- Academic but you sense. can still gain skills from everything you do. Like everything matters. Everything adds up. I'm a really big believer in that. And so like, even for you, like you're staying in your PhD, but you're still going to use it even if you don't think you do. Yeah. You're getting those skills, right? Right. And that's the point is like, you're going to be able to use whatever you're learning in this phase of life, in your next phase of life, even if it seems completely unrelated. And it doesn't have to be this like overnight switch. I started an Instagram page. I don't even have a first product on my my page yet, but like that's the goal, right? Is to slowly transition in these other things that fulfill me. And maybe one day I won't be doing anything with academia or maybe I will. Who cares? Like when you open yourself to the idea of like, what makes me feel good right now? Or what is something that interests me that I think I can do? You're allowed to 
tinker with stuff as an adult. You're allowed to tinker with new hobbies and new things. And you can also decide pretty soon if you like them or not, you know, and if you want to continue, for example, if you're an adult trying to run again for the first time since ever, maybe ever, right? If you run for the first week and you hate it, you don't ever have to do it again. (laughs) You know, like it's easy for you to pick up something, try it out and put it back down without uprooting your life. All right. So now that we've officially kind of took a tangent with some life lessons of Caitlin's there, which I think are valuable and meaningful. So we'll leave those in. Um, let's, let's wrap us up on just honestly talking about your half Ironman experience and like your goals with that and how that actually ended up being something that you did pursue. You know what I mean? Like you take, like we just talked about tinkering and things where you actually were like, Hey, like I want to go all in on this thing. Like that, yeah. you know, quote unquote brought you joy kind right. of. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that is the thing. Cause I did tinker with running or whatever before. And then I had a bike, but I didn't, I didn't even really know how to road cycle, to be honest. Like, I, it's a joke that you never forget how to ride a bike or whatever the saying is, but I forgot how to ride a bike. I legit did not know how to ride a road bike. And I have a bunch of horrendously hilarious stories of all of my bike fails when I first started training. <laughs> um, like, you know, just I dropped my chain in the first race too. Like, and had, to, <laughs> I mean, just horrible stuff. Um, but so I think, that's a great example of I just leaned into something I'd always been interested in. Um, I think it's kind of a natural transition for swimmers to look towards triathlons, especially because that's such a huge recreational um, sport that people do in their adult life. But I always imagined that you had to have like really fancy equipment and you would probably do this when you were older or retired or, you know, like when you had the money and the quote unquote time to train for it. And my friend Zach, who, um, shout out, uh, <laughs> we were childhood friends and he was doing his, um, dual undergrad and master's degree here in my first year, of my PhD, and we started swimming together. So this is actually the first time I really got back into swimming for sport. And we were just swimming together for training, um, for just enjoyment. And we noticed a guy in the lane next to us wearing a, a half Ironman or Ironman cap. I can't remember which. And we started talking. We're like, oh, cool. Are you a triathlete? You know, like how long you've been doing it? What, you know? And he's like, oh, well, that, that's cool. So what are you guys training for? And we're like, oh, we're just here swimming. And he's like, you don't have any interest in triathlon? And we're like, oh, no, we want to do that one day. He's like, one, one day. Yeah. One day is um, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and he was like, you're young. You're fit. Do it now. And we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> we felt so silly because you don't even if you don't hold those lies up to your face like some if you don't examine them you don't think of them as lies or excuses you just think of them as good intentions like oh i will do that someday i'll do that but there's no actual tangible take from that um yeah and if you don't look at it like you don't it doesn't come up often enough for you to really examine like if that's still true like are you going to do it one day or when are you going to do it you know and so when we kind of were confronted with that reality, we both signed up for the half Ironman in Chattanooga, like six months out or something like that. And I, I kid you not, I love my half Ironman story because it's just so silly. Like I bootstrapped, this is what I call my way to half Ironman because I didn't even have cleats. Like I didn't even have, I'm a doc student, you know, I can make poor jokes or whatever. I'm not going to anymore because I'm working on that money mindset, but <laughs> I didn't want to pay the $6 for cleats. So I wore tennis shoes on my bike. Like I raced a half Ironman on the bike in tennis shoes. And I didn't even have a wetsuit. 
me and Zach were the only ones in Chattanooga without a wetsuit. That water is so cold. <laughs> and we just jumped in in our tri kit, you know? And I think what I love about my story is that I really just showed up without all of the quote unquote proper gear and proved to myself that I don't have to wait to do the things that I want to in life. And I think that's a a big, we'll have to, I mean, I could rant about this all day long, that big, messy middle mindset, more or less, that you have to be a hundred, and that's, you mean, you're a perfectionist more than I am. I'm more of a fuck it, full send type person. You know what I mean? Like, I have to have fuck it, full send energy for this triathlon. Yeah. <laughs> so like, when you lean into that, I mean, like, but I still have hesitations and tons of self-doubt voices and things like that, like we all do, but there's that messy middle message where like you have to be a hundred percent ready or prepared or have the perfect gear or it's like the perfect timing to do anything in life and like we're both in our phds and you're like i mean it's funny because we weren't friends this time and i'm like fuck it i'm gonna run an ultra marathon in the first semester of my phd not a smart decision you're gonna go do a half ironman not a smart decision i'm gonna start a business not a smart decision by everyone else's rules though. That's yeah. everyone else's rules that they've put on their lives and they're going to put on us. And there's that message that like, you have to have these perfect timing for all these things. But the reality is like, there's no perfect timing. Experience buys skill later on. And so like you did a half Ironman in Chattanooga with no wetsuit and no tennis shoes, but like you didn't die. You know what I mean? Like it might not have been perfect, but you did it. You know what I mean? Like you're a half Ironman and like what percentage of the population can say that, right? And like, it was not a good time. It wasn't a perfect time, but like you were like, fuck it, full send. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Funny enough, without all of the stuff, I, that Chattanooga race was like the best racing experience I've ever had. I was enthused the entire time. And normally half Ironman stories, which my Augusta one is like stories of pain and suffering, you know, I, no pain, no suffering, just straight ecstatic. The entire time. Enthusiasm. Smiling. Like the, we'll like all of the photos are really like, open mouth smiling and that's what it's all we'll 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 have more conversation in the podcast later on about just like racing and our stories and experiences with that in general but i think that's really important to show that like you can have really great things come from imperfect timing and ill preparation by just kind of listening to your gut and going and trying something out and like doing what just feels good and right for you which i think is like we're a Luckily now, like your your story, which we've been talking about here for an hour now, really transcends into this like really beautiful translation of like a confused teenager who's defeated and heartbroken and restricting your food and using exercise and over obsessing over your schedule and trying to be perfect into trying to force yourself into a niche that you don't belong into while simultaneously refining your identity as an athlete in a really beautiful way of like. The, exactly that experience like not any of the right gear but joy which is like athleticism at its absolute peak best but then re-identifying the track of your career and what you actually want to do and like both those things came about in a way that were like one when you were so full send at early on where like you kind of had to reroute and rethink that over and the other was like almost like the one thing you were avoiding but ended up being like where that joy came to volition later on and so now i mean obviously we're all still growing and developing and blossoming when we're in our 20s we don't know jack all probably compared to most of you so you're probably like thinking oh you young naive girls but uh, <laughs> we're gonna listen to this like a year later and hate everything, I hate everything I said right now I'm already like Alyssa you're an idiot like I can't believe that you have this mindset in two years I'm graduated which doesn't seem like a real time yet but if you had to give one final summation of your like just your message and your view of living in the messy middle and growing into who you are and ignoring the black and white and polarizing, like what would be your, like, you're just like soliloquy to, to our audience of like your best advice to them on making that, you know, 
that transition from the black and the white into that colorful full spectrum of gray. Is it really nerdy to say read? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like I can't give advice any better than all of the books that I read gave it. And I mean, yeah. that's spoiler alert. That is one of like my potential life goals of something that would fulfill my cup is to write a book. I know, shout out Bethany, because <laughs> we're just shouting out because she's writing a book. Um, no, and I think I think that's on, that's on my bucket list too. Is something that I feel would really suit both my talents and my interests. But I think just pick up more books or listen to them on audio format. I mean, you don't have to like physically reading to get a bunch of good information from books, and you're listening to this podcast, so just pop in an audio book too. You know, yeah. Like, and I think a lot of people think that like they have to figure out everything for themselves, but a lot of people have already figured out a lot for right? you. Yeah, yeah, like who cares what I have to say? Other people had it, you know, better. It's fine. Like just read more, listen to other people's perspectives, like try to learn from other people. And that's going to help you figure out what applies to your life and how to shape it the way you want to. And I think especially tying into like the messy middle message that we have here is that listen to things that also challenge your viewpoints or challenge the messages that maybe you've always consumed or thought or like conflict with that, because that's going to really help, especially like if you, you know, if you really have really negative experiences about your body from like, you know, either the fitness industry or sport or fitness, or, you know, your capacity and your capabilities and all that stuff, like listen to these things that challenge that or make you turn inward and reflect. Cause I, I mean, I don't think I've read as much as you, but I've read quite a bit and it's, it, it does rock your world to have people say things that you never thought other people felt or experienced or knew or it. And you're like, Oh, shit. Well, when you put it like that, and I think that's like a great summation of really simple life advice is to just, I mean, the, I mean, I think some of the best minds in the world, their best advice are people's going to be read. Yeah. Read more. And the, the one thing I will say too, I guess, to actually give some advice is when you are reading those things that challenge you, or maybe you don't even realize it's a challenge, but like you feel either offended by it, like you, you disagree with it and like it, like, gets to you in your core, you know, if you feel that kind of like, uh, feeling while you're reading a book, put it down and think about why, like that has been the biggest, I think. Call yourself out on yeah. your shit. Yeah. yeah. Like him in your shit. When you, you, you're brushing up against something that makes you uncomfortable, that's when you need to lean in and say why. Cause I, I will say reading is great and I love it, but you can definitely read a book and not get anything from it. If you're not looking inward when you really feel those moments. I think it's probably better to read one book and apply everything you learned than read 10 books and apply none of it. I think that's, that's yeah. That's there's, I would say there's a messy middle. And we're, we're so bad. <laughs> I know. We're really plugging in this branding. Thank you. Stop once things get rolling, but. <laughs> no, but I mean, you're better off taking small actions than, cons you know, there's a, there's a, cons there's a point of consumption where you need action to follow for that consumption to actually be worthwhile, be worthwhile and have value, including our message in our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Go do some shit about it. So with that being said, obviously we don't have this on here for you, but we're doing this with other guests. I have no notes in this. I'm free balling this right now. I'm going to do it with you anyway. Okay. So what we're going to do with all of our interviewees, which we, we were doing this after we did a few people. So now I know that we're doing it. Kate didn't do it for me, but I think everyone just knows my opinions on everything. <laughs> I'm loud mouth. Everyone knows what Alyssa likes and doesn't like. I like, make sure you know. So even though we believe in living in the messy middle, which we've thrown in way more than it's appropriate, <laughs> 
we like to ask people this or that, which are the extremes that they might live in. And so I have none of this for Kate, but Kate's my friend, so I know this. So I'm going to ask her anyway. So Kate, wine or beer? Ooh, wine. Lately beer, but wine all time. Peter or Rocky? Peter. I, can't, I love listen, I love my dog, but like Peter's human. I can't. He's my fiance. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, swim or run? Or never mind. Bike or run? Ooh. Ooh. And I like swim the best. I run more, but I like the feeling on the bike best. Yeah, bike. Uh, research or teaching? These are actually really good and really hard. Um, <laughs> teaching? Oh, no. No, I'm going to flip-flop research. Sure. Teaching. Podcasting or Instagram? <laughs> Podcasting or Instagram? Okay. I'm actually the worst person to do this with. I'm so indecisive. I'm making you. Podcasting. Podcasting okay. fun. Okay, yeah. good. Tea or coffee? Coffee. That one's easy. Donuts or cookies? Donuts. Pasta or pizza? Shit. <laughs> I'm an aspiring Italian woman. You can't make me choose, but I will choose pasta. Shit. Oh, I already regret it. Okay. That's all I got for you. I'm <laughs> really I knew that there's really more, good. but I got brain dead. I, got, really good. <laughs> I started thinking about pasta and we have dinner waiting, so I'm a little distracted. So, so. goodbye. <laughs> Anyway, guys, we're going to wrap up this episode. I hope you enjoyed this. One of the things I really want you guys to get out of this podcast is to get to know Kate a little better since we know a lot of you are coming from me. So if you don't follow her yet, please go flood her Instagram at Coach Carmichael. Check out her post. I mean, she has like some solid science in-depth posts. Like Kate goes hard on those posts. So go scroll her feed, learn something, give some love. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you're just really excited to get to know Kate a little bit better, go ahead and please rate, review. And if you didn't download this episode, go ahead and download it for us. And if you want to delete it later, we won't be offended. And we're going to do a review of the week. So if you can, go ahead, leave a review, share with us how you feel about our podcast, hopefully positive things, and leave your Instagram handle. We're going to pick a review of the week each week, and we're going to shout you out on our Instagram, The Messy Middle Podcast. And we're going to give you one free product of any of my eBooks if you want to endure, my nutrition guide, or my training guide, or my at-home workout PDF. You can pick whatever one you would like and I will send that to you if you are selected at the as the reviewer of the week. So please just give our podcast some love and we'll give you some love back. It was nice chatting with you guys today. Hopefully you enjoyed getting to know Kate and we'll check you out next week on the next episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. Kate, you ready to sign us out? Yes. Thank you all so much for listening to my rambling story. Remember, we want you to live well. Man better and, and stay, stay messy. messy. Boom. Boom. Mic drop. Yeah, yeah, being goofy is like so helpful because I honestly I feel like if I get too serious, it's not real. Like I'm more goofy anyway. It's it's not that serious. Yeah. I can hear when you start to get too serious. Yeah. Just start making funny faces at me. Yeah. Great. I'm gonna leave some of this in. <laughs>